Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. have your Bibles, if you would open it to Acts 2, 42. We will have one last meal prepared for us from these verses. I do feel somewhat like a, a kid at Christmas, although it's been many years since that was the case, but just looking forward to this uh, this sermon, not because it's the last sermon, um, but uh, more than that, uh, because as we've been going through Acts 2, that one verse, and been exploring other places in the Bible, it's, it's all culminating to this. And as we've gone through each sermon, I've been looking forward to this day, and it's just like, I want to do it, I want to be there, but... I trust that you have been patient as I have tried to be patient, and now here we are at last in this final uh, sermon of this series, which talks about the church and our devotions. We began four weeks ago asking ourselves some questions, perhaps a provocative question, I don't know, but I asked, why are we here this morning? And so we end our time together asking, why are we here this morning? What are we to do when we go to church? Do we simply do what we have always done without questioning? Should we change what we're doing? Or can we even change what we're doing? There are certain things that we should avoid. Are there certain things that if we fail to do them, we shouldn't even call ourselves a church. And would the answers to those questions make a difference as to which church we attended? Is one church just as good as another? Does it make a difference in our lives? Or perhaps it doesn't even matter if you attend church. Does the church matter? Yes, the church matters. How people who profess to love Christ show that they are deceiving themselves by how they regard the church. For how can we say that we love Christ but not love the church whom Jesus loved and gave himself up for? How can we say that we love Christ but not follow in obedience God's design for the church? How can we say that we love Christ and not be eager to maintain the unity 
of the church, which is his body. How can we say that we love Christ, but look around this room and not love those whom he obtained by his own blood? How can we say we love Christ, but treat the church, the household of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth, with indifference? Treating it like we're a consumer, deciding where we're going out to eat or shop. Maybe we go when it's convenient. Maybe I'll take this on one day and this on another day. We cannot say we love Christ and then by our actions show that we do not love Christ. May we not deceive ourselves. What do we do with our actions, not our intentions, not what we wish we could do or we should do, but what we actually do reveal about how we really view the church and how we really view Christ himself. My aim this morning is to teach, to reprove, to correct, and to train in righteousness. Perhaps you've never learned why you ought to value the church. So we're going to teach. Perhaps you've been taught but you've disobeyed. So we reprove. Perhaps you've been taught, but you were taught wrongly or you misunderstood, so we correct. Perhaps you've been taught correctly and have obeyed, but now you need to continue. Now you need to grow in maturity. Now you need to grow in your capacity to love the church, so we train in righteousness. And all these things don't come from me. They come from God's word. And his words are profitable for all of these endeavors, for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So with that in our minds, in our ears, and hopefully in our hearts, let's stand together and one final time read Acts 2, 42 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, open our eyes this morning to behold wonderful things from your word. Open our eyes this morning that we might behold Christ afresh this morning. That you might build your church. That you might receive glory. That we might have joy together in you. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. We've been, as it were, in the trees these last four weeks. But let's take a step back and take a look at the forest. We see together in that verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we were reminded that the church is to continue steadfastly in these practices. That's what the, the word devoted means, to continue steadfastly. We are to stay in a fixed direction with intense effort and in spite of any difficulty that we might encounter. And we do so because we are devoted to Christ himself. We will not long continue in any of these things, in any teaching, any fellowship, any breaking of bread or prayers, if we are not first devoted to Christ. We are to be those who press on to the goal of the prize of the upper call of Christ. We are to be those who abide in Christ, remain in Christ, that he might abide and remain in us. Daily we are to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. For we are those who say we have been crucified with Christ. That is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. So we ask ourselves this morning, are we devoted to Christ? We can make our lives about a great many things other than Christ. And because we can do that, we can make the church about a great many things other than Christ. So we ask, we test ourselves, are we devoted foundationally and ultimately to Christ? And if we are, how do these four devotions display that devotion to Christ? In fact, how do these four devotions foster our devotion to Christ? And I'll submit that there are three ways from our text in which these four devotions given to the church, show and foster our devotion to Christ himself. So there are three ways. First, our devotions model Christ's life. I get that from verse 42. Our devotions model Christ's life. Secondly, our devotions display Christ's love. Our devotions display Christ's love. I get that primarily from verses 44 through 46. And lastly, our devotions fulfill Christ's mission. Verses 43, I didn't forget about 43, and 47. Three, three I got all three of them this Sunday, right? Okay, good. I missed, I missed one last Sunday. But. So how do we begin here? How do our devotions model Christ's life? We might ask ourselves, and hopefully we do ask ourselves these questions because we're asking these questions of the text, why these four devotions? Why these four practices or habits? And hopefully we would answer that these are the very same devotions our Lord displayed during his earthly ministry. So the ones who followed Jesus, the disciples, had been true to their namesake, that they were truly learners. They had learned and now are following in the pattern set by Jesus. So how do we see these? The teaching. He was devoted, Jesus was devoted to teaching. We were reminded that Jesus was known far more as a teacher than a miracle worker. In fact, there are many in the world today, I would venture to guess, who would deny the deity or lordship of Jesus 
but they still respect his teaching. We look in God's word, be reminded that as a boy of 12, he was found in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. The Sermon on the Mount was one of the most astonishing, was one of astonishing teaching. For those who listened and were being taught, recognized that he taught as one with true authority. In his trial before Pilate, one of the chief accusations against him was that he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So Jesus was devoted to teaching, and his church is to be devoted to his teaching, because it is the teaching of Christ himself. Jesus was devoted to the fellowship, the sharing of life together. We were reminded that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And so he was. He was living among his people during his earthly ministry. But more than living among people in general, he spent his days and nights traveling the land with those whom he had called out, his disciples. We see the disciples giving up their homes and jobs to follow Jesus. We see women who would provide uh, from their means to support Jesus' ministry. So we see here shared life together. They shared time and space and goods. In fact, I think there is an implicit statement about how much Jesus was with people that during his arrest and trial, he was alone. That it was a contrast to how he had lived his entire life in his earthly ministry. His sheep were scattered all had left him and fled. So as Jesus was devoted to the fellowship, his church is to be devoted to the fellowship in Christ. Jesus was devoted to the breaking of bread, not only eating and participating in the Passover together, but in revealing the true meaning of all breaking of bread, his body broken on the cross for sinners, So when we eat, we are reminded that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, including the word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that we are to be nourished by the very bread of heaven. Jesus revealed that to eat the bread and drink the cup just as we've done was to always remind his disciples to remember him, to remember the cross, to remember on whom their lives depended. So as Jesus was devoted to the breaking of bread, as he was devoted to the cross, so his church is devoted to the breaking of bread, to be nourished by Jesus. Jesus was devoted to prayer. Not only did he teach his disciples to pray, but he prayed himself. We think of how he would go off to desolate places and pray all night to the Father, how he prayed for his disciples in his high priestly prayer, how he prayed in the garden before he drank the cup of God's wrath, how he prayed that the Lord's will would be done, that God's kingdom would come. Remind that he's even interceding before us now, before God's throne. So as Jesus was devoted to the prayers, we are to be devoted as his church to the prayers. For we want to see God's kingdom come. 
teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. These are the four priorities of the church, which seems simple, but they are profound. I think we can often try to make our lives more complicated than this. That we can take our eyes off of what is really important and what makes us a church in the first place. That we could say, maybe I'll take the teaching and the fellowship, but uh, not the prayer. Or I'll take the prayer, but fellowship is pretty tough. Maybe I'll leave that one out. Or it's like, no, I actually have a better idea. I think this is more important than one of those four. So I devote myself not to those four things, but to this other thing. But if we are not doing this foundational, simple thing collectively as a church or individually as believers, what does that say about us? We should question ourselves if we are not first and foundationally devoted to these four things. Have we sought to become wise in our own eyes, sought a better way, and ignored these foundational devotions? Which is not to say that these habits are simple or that they're easy to begin or they're easy to continue in. Which is why they are devotions. <laughs> they're these things that we apply ourselves by hard work and accountability to continue doing. So we ask ourselves, do our devotions model Christ's life? Is our life modeling what he has done in his earthly life? Is this something that we continue in doing as Christ did? But secondly, our devotions display Christ's love. One commentator suggests that we should not think of these devotions as four separate activities, but four elements that characterize the Christian gathering, what was characteristic of their lives, that these gatherings together were for instruction and fellowship and for prayer. They were for the benefit of those taking parts. We might forget that, that it's for the benefit of those taking part. They were not devotions that were in, ends in and of themselves, but they were inherently about relationships and inherently to foster and display the love of Christ. And when I say our devotions display the love of Christ, I have two things in mind. The first is that our devotions are a result of Christ's love for us. So they display Christ's love to us. That we are those who have been ransomed from the futile ways of sin through the precious blood of Christ. That we have new hearts that are sprinkled clean. That we now obey Christ. So we display that God has truly loved us. But secondly, it displays Christ's love to others. For those who have been born again through the living and abiding word of God, purify themselves by our obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, that we would love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So we are born of Christ's love and we display Christ's love. And just to be clear about what I'm using as my definition of love, and it's not first and foremost a feeling, but true Christian love 
is rooted in Christ who said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So true love at its root is laying down our lives for someone else for their ultimate good. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So Jesus commands us to love one another as he has loved us. That we in fact show that we are his. That we show we are his friends by doing that very command. And so we ask ourselves, are we laying down our lives for one another? Are there limits to it? Say, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> this is who I am, and I stay fixed in my path, and where I can do this, I will, but I can't deny the things that I want to do first and foremost. That is not displaying Christ's love. It's not laying down our lives. We talk often about the Christian life being cruciform, right? That is having the shape of the cross, and there are many uh, cathedrals and temples that take this literally in their architecture. The buildings, when viewed from above, look like a cross. But of course, it's not the literal shape of the church building that matters, but the spiritual shape of the church people that matter. So we want to ask ourselves, do we have the form of the cross in our church but we do not have the cross itself. Behind me, we have the words, glory to God alone. We have an empty cross behind it. But is that what we want? Is that how we live our lives? Do we want God to have all the glory? Do we want God to have the glory alone? Or may we say those things but we live our lives as though we want the glory ourselves, that we want things our way and not God's. If we want things our way, God does not get the glory. One final pop quiz. As you walked into the church this morning, did any of you notice the engraving between the two main doors out there? I'll take that as a no. <laughs> does anyone know, if you happen to see it in the past, what's actually engraved on there is a verse. You could actually say it now. I, no. Pop quizzes, they're always disappointing for everyone, right? But <laughs> For the teacher and the student, but it was a pop quiz. To be fair, I had to look at it myself. It says, dedicated to the glory of God, October 10th, 2003, has a verse, 1 Kings 8, verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God there is no other. 1 Kings 8.60. Now, I'm not going to ask this out loud, but you can answer this yourself. 1 Kings 8.60. Do we know the context of that verse? It was during Solomon's dedication of the temple. A house built for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. The ark had been brought in, and now the temple was where God's presence would, most, would dwell most profoundly. And that's how it concludes that particular passage. All the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God and there is no other. 
And yet, if we know our Bibles, we know that is not how the story ended. For Solomon, who dedicated the temple, did not obey the Lord. He entered into marriage with foreign women, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. Solomon, in fact, built other places for his wives to worship their gods. So how did it end? It ended with God raising up adversaries for Solomon in the land. It ended with God taking away the kingdom from Solomon. And what a cautionary tale for us. Because we would be fools to think that we could not become or have become the very same thing. That we would be what are referred to as whitewashed tombs. That outwardly we appear beautiful, but within we are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. That we might outwardly appear religious and righteous, but within we are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So we test ourselves. Have we, as a church, been disobedient to God? Have our hearts turned away from him? Would God, instead of being for us, now raise up adversaries against us? Would he remove our lampstand? May we be sobered by what was written in God's word, for it was written for our instruction. Our life is to be cruciform. It's to display Christ's love. And these devotions of ours, these devotions that we have together as a church, overflow then, this cruciform life overflows into every aspect of what we do. And that's what we see in the context of the text in verses 44 through 46. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So here we see the daily life of Christians described. It distinguishes their activities in the temple from that in their homes where they ate their meals. They had glad and generous hearts. So as fellowship is one, as, has oneness and sharing, there is um, the fruit of the Spirit, there is joy. Acts 4.32, we read there, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So as we gather together on the Lord's Day as Christ's church, and we devote ourselves to the teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers, we devote ourselves to those same when we are apart. But what Christian among us would say that we are devoted to these one day a week and not devoted to the other six? If you are not devoted each day, then you cannot be devoted on one day. Test ourselves. When we come together, when we are at home, do we desire biblical nourishment or merely knowledge? Do we desire loving fellowship, the sharing of our lives together? That we would linger before and after service 
and throughout the week making efforts to connect with one another? Are we satisfied with exchanging pleasantries and being acquaintances with one another? Do we desire vibrant worship to proclaim the worth of God? Or are we merely looking for a feel-good experience? Are we satisfied to do what looks religious? Feel like we've done the right thing for the week and now we can go on with our lives. Do we desire the joy of the Lord when we come together? Is the overflow of our devotions the display of Christ's love toward us and toward one another? Lastly, our devotions fulfill Christ's mission. Our devotions fulfill Christ's mission. The picture of the church we have in Acts 2 is not one of a self-centered and self-contained church absorbed in its own parochial affairs, not my word, but a commentator's word. Are we that kind of a church? Are we self-centered, self-contained, absorbed in our own affairs? That's not the church of Acts 2. This is one that stood out in contrast to the unbelieving world around it by simply being the church. That is, the church was doing what the church is supposed to be doing together. And so they were different. And may that be a warning to us for churches out there that attempt to look like the world. They want to dress like the world. They want to act and talk like the world. They want to use the world's wisdom and not wisdom that we get from God's word. To which I would ask, if that is what your church looks like, if your church looks like the world, then what need does the world have for your church? They can get that seven days a week. We ought to be different by not even trying to be different. We don't look at what the world does and say, well, I'm going to do the opposite of that. We look at what God's word says, and by the fact that we're obeying what God's word says, we are different from the world because the world is not obeying God's word. The church is obeying God's word. And we see here, as the church is being the church, is focused on being the church, in verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. May we never outgrow the mission of the church that we see in that verse. Those who are being saved. We see here the fulfilling of Christ's mission. One of my favorite verses, unlike my kids, I can have favorite verses, is Luke 19.10. There, Jesus is reading from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sat down. I thought, what would it have been like to have been in the synagogue when he said that? This is what I'm about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm the anointed one. I'm going to proclaim the good news to the poor. This is the year of the Lord's favor. That was the mission he gave to the church to make disciples of all nations. May we never tire of hearing these verses. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts 1.8, Jesus says to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we see in Acts. We say Acts is Acts of the Apostles, but it's the Acts of Jesus Christ, his church. I'm going to give you these real quick. You can write them down and reference them later on. How do we see in the book of Acts God building his church? Acts 2.41. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4.4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Acts 5.14. And more than ever, uh, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women. Acts 6.7. And the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Acts 11.21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 11.24. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Acts 16.5. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. We fulfill the mission of Christ by first being the church. We are not to be insular, but I would say our first preoccupation is examining how we are living as the church. We see here that the call of the Great Commission didn't start by sending support to missionaries that were halfway around the world. We see here that the fulfilling the Great Commission doesn't even begin with going door to door in outreach or sharing the gospel with a coworker or a neighbor or a friend or relative. But the Great Commission starts within the church itself, that we are to be proclaiming the gospel one to the other, that we would look at one another and we would see day by day, week after week, year after year, Jesus' words, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Might we, like Paul, say to one another, I long to see you. Do you long to see people in this fellowship? <laughs> Would you say that? I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you to strengthen you, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. So we can make the mistake of a church by thinking that fulfilling the Great Commission is first by going out to all the ends of the earth. The church started in Jerusalem, and before it even went out to Jerusalem, it started within the church itself. 
But secondly, we forget that fulfilling the Great Commission and fulfilling the Great Commission, we cannot authentically or effectively proclaim something that we are not living or savoring ourselves. That we, as we read earlier in 1 Peter 2, we are to be like newborn infants, that we are to long for the pure spiritual milk, that we may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have we come to this place as a church where we merely talk about the Lord being good? We talk about the Lord being great. Or do we know that the Lord is good? Do we know this experientially? Can we look at our lives and we taste the Lord's goodness, that we taste the Lord's greatness, and that we savor his goodness moment by moment and day by day? This is not to say that we are to follow in that saying which says, we proclaim the gospel and we use words if necessary. For faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But our lives, make no mistake, adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our fellowship adorns the gospel of Christ or brings reproach upon Christ. Do we know this goodness of Christ among ourselves? That our fellowship, while not perfect, while mixed with sin, nevertheless is sweet and precious in a true community because Christ is among us. That it's evident that Christ is who we treasure. That in our sin against one another, we remain together because we cling to Christ. We cling to the gospel. And we say, I've sinned against you. Forgive me. And where the world would say, I'm not going to forgive you. You've sinned against me. I'm going to hold this over your head. You don't deserve forgiveness. The Christians would say, I forgive you because I've been forgiven myself. And I'm going to pursue this forgiveness day after day. That I know I'm going to sin against you. Whether by omission, or by whether my intention. And I need your forgiveness to me. Do we make our church something other than about Jesus Christ? Do we make it about politics? Do we make it about a view of the world that we live in? Do we make it about programs? Or do we make it about Jesus Christ? May the Lord be merciful to us even this morning if we have done so. That if in our hearts we have not set apart Jesus Christ as holy in our lives. If we do what we can do, what we're supposed to do, we will have true joy in him. And what will the Lord do? If we commit ourselves to what we're to be doing, what will the Lord do? What does it verse 47 say? It says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So even in our love and our community and our stumbling and our preaching of the gospel to one another, we don't say, Well, we look how good of a church we are. We cling to the gospel. Look how great we are to one another, how we adhere to these doctrines, how we do all the things we're supposed to be doing. No, we will look to God and say, it is he who's fulfilling his mission. He is adding to the numbers. We water, we plant, but it's God who gives the increase. It is God who's building his church. We are laboring in vain if God does not build this church. Which is why we can say God receives the glory because we will look around us and say, we can't take credit for us. If it was up to us, we would be divided. We would fall apart. The lampstand would be gone. But it's God who builds his church. 
but he does not build it apart from our commitments. He builds it through our commitments, through the church being obedient to what he's commanded us to do in his word. So I ask you, why are you here this morning? Is God's kingdom what you want? Would you want to be anywhere else? If the answer is yes, then go there, do that thing. But if you want to be here, then be here. We want Christ at this church. We want to be obedient to Christ. We want to model Christ's life. We want to show forth Christ's love to one another. We want to fulfill Christ's call to proclaim the kingdom of God. So that's why we do it. We don't do these devotions to add something to your to-do list. Well, I got to go do the teaching. I got to go to Sunday school. I don't want to go to Sunday school. I feel guilty about that. Oh, there's this, these Bible studies. I don't, I don't know. I, prayer, uh, you know, Sunday nights are busy for me. Do you want the kingdom or do we not want the kingdom? What does God call us to in his word? He says, if you want the kingdom, be devoted to the teaching. Be devoted to the fellowship. Be devoted to the breaking of bread. Be devoted to the prayers. Devote yourselves to the church because in devoting yourself to the church, you are devoting yourself to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we labor in vain if you are not building this church. We labor in vain if we don't love the things that you love. If we're play-hacking church, I pray, Lord, that our lives would not bring reproach upon the gospel. That when we preach the gospel and we say, the gospel, Christ, is the only name under heaven by which you must be saved, that this life and death truth is borne out in our lives. If it's not borne out in our lives, Lord, where will it be? And we confess, Lord, that we have failed you. We have failed Christ. We have failed one another. Many times. In many ways. So we turn to you. We turn to the blood of Christ again this morning. Confessing our sins trusting that in Christ we can be forgiven those sins as grave as they are, as dire as they are. That in fact Jesus' blood not just yesterday or last year or ten years ago would cleanse us, but would cleanse us even now. Lord, I pray that you would build your church. That many might come to know your favor. That many might come to know salvation that we might find our joy rising and fulfilling your great mission in this world, that you would receive the glory. 
that is due your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray.